Welcome back, everybody. Uh, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Upstream. Uh, this is mine and Dylan. We are some nobodies. You can see our website right back here, somenobodies.com. We are content creators, podcast makers, uh, extreme talkers, really, if anything else. Uh, but yeah, so this is just our creative process. Uh, we like to take very weird ideas and then turn them into something, whether it is a movie, which we're hoping to make very soon, uh, or a TV show or a podcast or even, uh, who knows, like a theme park. Mm. I, I, yeah. uh, <laughs> but before we get anything going, Mr. Dylan, how are you today, sir? I'm doing all right. I'm a little chilly, but that seems to be the trend this season out here. Yeah, man. It yeah. Is a chilly Colorado day. Yeah. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Doing pretty mm. well. Uh, I'm very happy with how this show's been going. We've been getting some pretty great guests yeah. that really have <laughs> taught us some stuff and and really got us uh, inspired and, and moving forward with some cool projects. Yeah. Uh, last week, Ronnie Warner, uh, awesome guest. The week before that, we had Hallie Lambert uh, from The Expanse, which is awesome. Uh, but this week, though, we have somebody very, very special. Uh, Mr. Dillon, do you want to introduce our guest this week, please? Yeah, so this week we are joined by Dan Mervish. He is um, director, writer, producer. Um, oh, he there was a fun, what was it? It was like a sub, gleeful subversive, something along those lines. Uh, I'll let him introduce himself. He's also the, one of the founders of the Slamdance Film Festival. So without any further ado, here's Dan Mervish. Howdy. How are you doing Hello, today? Mr. Good, good. Oh, I'm right doing great, on. you guys. Good. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, once again, thank you so much for taking your time and chatting with us. Uh, when we were looking over, once you said you, you would agree to do this, we were looking at even deeper into your IMDb page and uh, you have uh, quite an array of lists uh, of projects going on. Uh, what are some ones that you would like to talk about or things that you are most proud of, of, of your, your resume? Well, of, of the things I've done in the past or, or what I'm working on now, I guess. In, in the past that. first, yeah. Uh, well, in the past, I, I don't know. I mean, the first film I did, uh, was called Omaha, the movie, which, uh, I it technically would count as my thesis film when I was at USC in the, uh, grad production program there. Um, but you know, we just did like a 25th anniversary screening of it, um, right before the pandemic, uh, in Nebraska and, and on 35 millimeter, uh, which is how we shot it. And, and it still holds up really nicely. So I'm still actually planning on doing a, a 4k scan of the negative cause, uh, and I've talked to criterion channel about having them put it on there, interested in that. And the Academy wants to archive it and it's an honor just to be archived. So, um, so that's kind of fun that like the very first thing I did really it still has some legs, you know, um, and there's still interest in it. And I'm very proud of that. Uh, and then the, this, the next film I did, uh, which was a real estate musical called Open House, 
Um, that was a lot of fun. And we have a crazy Oscar story about how that one uh, literally changed the rules of the Academy Awards. Um, and there's still interest in that film and turning it maybe into a stage show or into something else. And, uh, and I'm still in touch with all my collaborators on that film. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, oh, what else? And then I did, uh, I did Between Us, which uh, was an adaptation of a play with Julia Stiles and Tay Diggs. And actually just today, someone tweeted me a message saying that he was a fan of that film. You may have gotten confused with someone else's film also named Between Us, but I'll take it. You know, I'm not fussy. Um, and then Bernard and Huey was the last one I did that was written by Jules Pfeiffer and had David Koechner and Jim Rash in it and um, was also talking about that uh, recently as well today uh, with a, in a couple different contexts. And I'm very proud of how that film turned out. So, um, yeah, I feel good about, like, I don't, I mean, it's not like a lot of people ever saw my films or they got great reviews or anything, but I, but I feel proud of them. And I think that's, especially as you guys are kind of finishing up your first film, like that's the most important thing because in 25 years, no one's going to remember how you, well, they will remember because of Rotten Tomatoes, but you know, how, how it did with critics. But the important thing is how do you feel about it? Are you proud of the work? And is it, are you going to, you know, are you going to think back in 25 years and go, Oh, why did I do that? Or, wow, that was great. It was a great experience or it led to something else or it was a learning curve, but it led, you know, it taught me something um, or you're just proud of it, but in and of itself. So I think that's the key thing when you're looking back at whatever you've done, you know, in whatever field, honestly. Yeah, I'm really right glad you said that because, uh, you know, Dylan and I, we got together a couple of years ago. We started making some nobodies and started creating a bunch of content. And at first it was like, hey, let's film this, let's film this, let's film this. And we started kind of like, you know, put, building up our, our, we're going to do this soon. But it was when we first, uh, when we started making this film is when, at least for me, and I, I think Dylan's the same, you do get that sense of pride. It's like, wow, I'm actually putting something together and you know there, there's a team of people that are doing some stuff here and i didn't expect to feel so proud making something uh i i was just i was excited to make something uh but yeah, yeah I'm, I'm glad you said that because i think looking back after dylan and i you know make our billions and whatever <laughs> and we take on the world i think we're going to look back at this very first project and just say like that was actually a lot of fun i'm, I'm very proud of that um, yeah. That's cool. But touching back on something you said earlier, uh, if you don't mind, you said that uh, one of your projects changed uh, some rules of the Oscars. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah. So this uh, this I had this is in 2004 is when it finally came out. I think we started working on it around 2002. But um, uh, I, along with my buddy Larry Maddox and I, we wrote this um, uh, this real estate musical called. Um, called open house uh and got together with a couple composer friends of ours joe kramer who's actually gone on to become a pretty big composer on like the mission impossible movies and things like that um and a guy named andrew melton anyway we got a uh, a great cast people like um sally kellerman who's an oscar nominee for mash anthony rapp who was just coming off of rent on broadway uh ann magnuson who's you know great and kelly martin all kinds of fun people anyway but we made this thing for next to nothing it was it was kind of this is kind of in the era of post dogma 95 when people in the states were, were making films on on mini dv and we were actually the first feature to shoot on the dvx 100 if you guys remember that camera the, the, was the first 24p camera anyway it doesn't look very good because we were the first ones using this camera and didn't know how to use it yet but the point is we had a lot of fun making it 
it was a real estate musical, which is exactly what it was. And, um, and we showed it at a bunch of festivals, audiences liked it, critics liked it, um, and distributors hated it and uh, didn't want to pick it up. And there, and there were probably fewer options back then. Uh, so we were kind of in this limbo that a lot of filmmakers back then and still now find themselves in where you've got something that you think is pretty halfway decent, but you can't really get much interest in it uh, in terms of distribution. So like all good Hollywood stories, this one starts with me coming out of the proctologist one day and I'm walking a little funny. And, and I get a call from uh, a good friend of mine, uh, my friend Ariana Baca, that was working at Miramax. She was like the head of acquisitions then. I was like, wow, head of acquisitions at Miramax calling me. It's going to be good news. And I was like, hey, Ariana, are you, are you, do you want to pick up the movie for distribution? She goes, no, that piece of crap, no way. And I was like, well, why are you calling me on this of all days when I'm walking funny? And she says, well, Dan, have you heard of this Oscar category called Best Original Musical? said best original musical that's crazy talk i've never heard of such a thing have you guys heard of such a thing no so she says no it's a real category that the academy has they've just never activated it i said activated and she so she says yes yeah. so the rules say that in any given year if there are five original musicals they activate the category and three of them get nominated and one of them wins and i'm thinking well that's that's a 60 percent chance of getting an oscar nomination and if we get an oscar nomination some distributor will come along and and pick up the film because who wouldn't want to say oscar nominee on, on the poster <laughs> so i said but hang on a second why hasn't this ever happened before she says, ah well the eligibility rules are really strict and arcane and so for example it has to have at least five songs the songs have to tell the story of the movie. The songs have to be by the same songwriting team. Uh, it can't be an unoriginal musical. So it can't be based on a stage play. It can't have, you know, jukebox music in there from pre-existing music. And so uh, I think those are the rules. Um, and so the point is there had never been a year when there had been five eligible films. The reason she was calling me is Miramax thought they had two films that were going to be eligible. And they needed a couple patsies like me just to fill out the category, but that wouldn't be good enough to take votes away from them. So they'd get the nomination. And I was like, sure, I'll be Harvey's patsy. What could go wrong with that idea? And, um, and she said, great. Um, but as it turned, and then we started looking for other films together to, to fill out this category. But as it turned out, the two Merrimax films uh, for these various arcane reasons were not eligible. Um, but our film was, we, it was totally original. We had a dozen songs. We, the four of us were the same songwriting team for all of it. Uh, we kind of stumbled into this, into being eligible for this category. So then I found, I started looking for other films. So that same year, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone did um, Team America World Police with uh, Paramount. They had six songs in there that was eligible. And I knew those guys kind of through slam dance. So we got them to submit. Disney had an animated film a musical, kind of the last of the hand-drawn animated films called Home on the Range that Alan Menken, who already had eight Oscars for Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, all that kind of thing, um, that was eligible. And we got, you know, and Alan was like, sure, I've got room on my mantelpiece for one more Oscar. I'll do it. <laughs> and um, so he and Disney submitted. And then uh, Neil Young had produced, a, uh, had directed a film called uh, Greendale which was kind of based on an album that he did, but they actually shot the film before the album came out and that made it eligible. And I knew Neil and his producing partner a little bit. And so we got them to submit, but we needed one more film. Now this is in August of 2004 and the deadline's December 1st at 5 PM. So I thought, well, great. I'll just shoot another one myself. How hard could it be? But as you guys know, it's a little challenging <laughs> to make a movie, you know? 
So, and especially because I was still busy going to festivals with, with my first film, with Open House. So I, uh, but I knew like two weeks later, I was going to be going to a festival in Germany. And one of my producing partners was coming with me. One of my actors, a guy named Robert Peters, was coming with me. So we thought, why don't we just shoot it while we're in Germany? You know, we grabbed another DVX 100, grabbed a microphone. That was the, that was the kit. We came up with an improvisable storyline. We wrote a dozen songs in two weeks, you know, easy peasy. And, and um, my friend who runs the festival in, in Oldenburg, Germany, that's where it was, um, he's a producer too. So he got a bunch of German actors and German rock stars, actually some pretty big names over there to agree to do it because they thought they were going to win an Oscar. And we're like, mm -hmm, sure. But the trick was it, it couldn't be that good of a film. We needed our own, because then it would take folks away from open house. We needed our own Patsy. So we had nine days to make a bad German musical. And so it was like a real life version of the producers. So for example, our, our lead actress said, you know, oh, we, we love this idea of making the German film and winning the Oscar. Uh, there are only two problems. I said, what? And she says, well, I can't sing and I can't improvise. And I said, you're perfect. So, um, we had all kinds of crazy adventures in Germany, ran around, shot this thing, came back to LA, slapped it together. And at, at 5 p.m. on, uh, on um, uh, you know, December 1st, we, we go to the academy and their office is on the seventh floor and the elevator is broken. So we're running up the stairs, running up the stairs. You finally get there, slap down the DVD or VHS or Betamax or whatever it was at the time. And say, okay, here you go. Here's your fifth musical. And they're like, ah, oh, you guys, you know, what kind of idiot goes to Germany to make a bad German musical? And I was like, well, this guy, you know. So then three days later, the the uh, board of governors meets, you know, and it's Tom Hanks and the studio heads, and they all talk like this, you know, they're the board of governors, and they, and they don't want to add any more categories to this three and a half hour long show. So they're like, well, who who are we going to give this Oscar to when all said and done? Trey and Matt who showed up in dresses, hopped up on acid the last time they were nominated. No, those guys are like banned for life. Neil Young, they were mad at him because he didn't show up to rehearsals once when he was nominated for a song for Philadelphia. They're like, no, we don't like Neil. Uh, Alan Menken, he's got too many Oscars. He's got eight. That's enough. That's Eight is definitely enough for him. And then this Mervish character, my two films, their combined budgets didn't add up to the cost of an Oscar gift basket. So there's no way they were going to give me one. And um, so they canceled the category for that year. Like, oh, you know, they're such sticklers for the rules. We're like, how can you do that? We followed every rule exactly. They're like, well, we're the academy. We, you know, what are you going to do about a kid? You know, and I was like, well, I'll take umbrage because really, what else can you take? And so I got a lot of press out of it. Hollywood Reporter, Variety, LA Times, Reuters picked up the story. It ran all over the world. And based on the press that we got, we wound up getting. Um, picked up by a small distributor that then shortly thereafter got bought out by the Weinstein company. Merrimax had just turned into the Weinstein company and they put out the DVD and on the back of the box, it says from the film that changed the rules of the Academy Awards, you know, Whoa. and, um, <laughs> you know, and remember the goal was to get distribution. The goal wasn't to yeah. get it um, And then meanwhile, uh, Robert, the guy I worked with on the German film, he, he spent like a year recutting it and it turned into a pretty decent film in the end. It, it wound up playing at festivals and getting distribution. And, um, and meanwhile, the Academy, they changed the rules. Um, so that category is actually still on the books to this day, has still never been activated, but they have what I call the Mervish rule that says, that specifically says we have the right to activate this category if we so choose to activate the category, if we want to, blah, you know. And um, <laughs> so that's in there. So that's why that, you know, film wound up changing the rules of the Academy Awards. So anyway, the point is, you know, 
there's a lot of stupid reasons to make a movie and I found one. Um, but you know, but meanwhile, Hey, to you guys and your audience out there, you know, just go make a musical and then you just find, all you need to do is find like four or five other, um, you know, uh, Indian, you know, Indian Bollywood films that are musicals, get them to submit. And then if they cancel the category, then again, that's, you know, that's just racist and they're pissing off a billion nuclear armed musical fans, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and then you stand to get an Oscar nomination. So there you go. I encourage everyone to go out and make a musical. All right, Dylan. It seems like it's, I saw our back door into, a, into an Oscar. It's that easy. Yeah, just make. We got some musical. We got some musical friends. We can do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it only needs to be forty-one minutes. That's the funny thing. The Academy huh. divides features and shorts at the forty-minute mark. Hmm. All you need to do is a forty-one-minute musical with at least five songs. No. Yeah, we can do that. All That's right. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's one every eight minutes. That's nothing. Yeah. Wow, what, what an incredible story. Man, that's uh, good. Yeah, so uh, Mr. Mervish, looking through your resume, what is your favorite thing to do when it comes to like the production of a film or anything? Is it is it the writing? Is it the filming? Is it the cinematography? Is it making up songs? <laughs> it's it's talking on podcasts afterwards about it. I think <laughs> All right. That's my um, oh, good. <laughs> I... I like the writing. I like uh, I like editing because um, those are the things where no one can really get injured, you know, or you can't get COVID. You don't have to wear a mask, you know. Um, and it's just you know you and and the work, you know, doing the the creative side of the work, uh, literally without worrying about is it raining? Is it you know? Is is the actor remembering their lines? Is, um, you know, I find actual production very stressful. <laughs> And um, whereas, you know, post-production is much like, okay, great. Time is on our side, you know, or at least in my case, like, I think if you're doing a studio film, it may not be that way, you know, when they've got these deadlines, but um, when you're making an indie film, you know, time is your best friend and, uh, and yeah, take your time. You know, it's only going to get better. Um, And I do enjoy the music part on, on the film I'm working on now. We have five songs in that one. It's not a musical, but, uh, but you know, but it's close, but it has a lot of music in it. Um, So I do enjoy that side of it. Um, And, uh, but yeah. And then the writing side where, you know, anything is possible, you know, when you're writing, there's a thousand, you know, people in the Prussian army come over the hill. Great. Yeah. That's easy to write. (laughs) unfortunately that other guy is me usually so you know. now you you direct and you write and you often direct stuff you've written like is there what kind of appreciable difference is there between directing your own written stuff versus directing like a script that someone else has done for you do you generally like go over and add your own touches or is it really just yeah. kind of like working on that what script you're given yeah so i've um, I've kind of done a range of things. I've, I've written my own script where I'm the sole writer, uh, open house. I collaborated with a co-writer on, and then I directed it. And then we collaborated with composers on the, on the, on the music. Um, the next one I did was an adaptation of an off Broadway play, but then I collaborated with the playwright, you know, on the screenplay adaptation. So I certainly had a, a hand in that one. And then the next one I did, Bernard and Huey, that was, that was interesting. That was based on a 30-year-old screenplay that was unproduced uh, and, and missing. 
too. Like nobody knew where it was. This is a screenplay by Jules Pfeiffer, who is an Oscar Pulitzer, OB, Tony nominated, uh, you know, legend. Um, and he didn't even know where it was. It took us like a year and a half to find it. We found the the script. One ver- we found one version of the script at the Academy Library. We found the handwritten version of the script at the at the Library of Congress. Um, and he was, you know, I think 87 when we started to work on the project, um, but was very gracious. And, he, you know, we didn't, even though it was set 30 years earlier and we were moving the time period up 30 years, we didn't have to actually change that much. Um, and he was very gracious in letting me sort of make those those small changes. Um, and then working with Jim Rash and David Keckner, we did a lot of improv and rehearsal on that, and that kind of refined it even further. So it was great collaborating with both those guys who were genius improvisers, and and for, not for nothing, Jim Rash is an Oscar-winning screenwriter. So mm-hmm. like, well, all right, I'm getting him to work for free on this thing. Why not? Um, and and Pfeiffer himself was very kind about you know he didn't he didn't mind that we were changing things so that was good and then and then this uh one i'm in post-production on now 18 and a half that one started with i kind of came up with the story idea then collaborated with with a buddy of mine daniel moya um and then he really did the the hard work of, of fleshing it out into a screenplay um and then he was with me he wound up being my producing partner too so on he was around on set most of the time too so uh, yeah, so I've kind of done that whole gamut, but I, uh, one way or the other, I always have a fair bit of say in it. Um, yeah, so I kind of like it. I mean, I like, I think the key to doing an adaptation now kind of having done that twice is you still have to make, make it yours. You know, you have to adapt it in a way that personalizes it to you so that, you know, these are not work for hires. No one's hiring me to do this. So if if I get sick of it halfway through, I, you know, I can't just walk away. So I've got to make it personal to me so that, you know, when we're shooting a scene, I can really relate to it, you know, in, in, in a deep, deeper way. So, for example, on, on Bernard and Huey, by moving it, everything up, the characters up 30 years, they then the characters then were basically my age. And so kind of the cultural references, the music and the films that the characters referred to in the script then kind of came from my life. And we literally shot part of it in my garage using my old posters and props and things like Mm -hmm. that. So, and that was a way to sort of make this, you know, 30 year old script written by someone, you know, 40 years older than me, like much more personal to me. And and, and the, the cast and the crew, they then respond to that you know, in, in a way, as opposed to, oh, this person's just, you know, kind of directing by the numbers, something that was just handed to them. Um, so I think that's the key if you're adapting any, anyone oh. else's work is to just kind of personalize it to you. One do, you have a, do you have any sort of specific writing process or do you just kind of sit down and pound some words out? Do you try and do it every day? Do you go for a goal? Are you a page I, numbers guy? Well, usually when it's not a pandemic, I usually go to a coffee shop every morning mm-hmm. and, and I figure you know, one cup of coffee is enough caffeine to do like 3000 words, you know, and, uh, and, All right. and enough, ca- and, and, you know, the caffeine turns into adjectives and prepositions and things like that. Um, Cause I do a lot of nonfiction writing articles and, and a couple books uh, as well. So that's kind of my, my formula. Um, and uh, you know, and screenplays are just, are just 
are just, you know, books without adjectives. So that's, you know, there's not much difference really. No. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, but in terms of writing screenplays, I, I think having some kind of an outline is definitely a good idea. Like knowing, knowing kind of how the thing is going to finish and where you're headed towards is, is a good idea. Um, but you know, everyone's different. Some people do kind of a mm -hmm. vomit draft first, which I think is not about it. We did that on 18 and a half and kind of like, okay, great. Now you're past the, you don't have to stare at a blank page. You know, it's always easier to edit. Uh, you know, I kind of liken it to, you know, you, the first draft is like a, a column of, of clay and you're just, or, or not clay, rock, you know, and you're just kind of, and every subsequent draft, you're chipping away, you're chipping away, you're chipping away at it. And eventually you have this statue or something, um, or a Doric column, I don't know, whatever it is you're making. And uh, um, and you just, it and takes patience. Like you have to go, no, it's not ready yet. I'm not gonna show it to people yet, not ready yet. Or, you know, you show it to a few people that you trust and they go, Ooh, that is not ready yet, you know, and you have to kind of, you know, trust the people that you're sharing it with before you really send it out to a lot of people. And, and, you know, and that, that can take a lot longer than you think sometimes. And I don't know. Yeah. Do you, um, do you tend to bounce multiple projects around simultaneously or are you sort of like a spearhead where you go for one at a time and try and get that good and then go to the next one? Yeah, I'm more of that, the latter. Um, well, I, I wish I was more of the former. I wish I had multiple things going on at once. And when I have done that, that's always worked out pretty well. Um, but I'm not good at multitasking creatively. So I can maybe do a book and a movie kind of at the same time because they're different mediums and have followed different schedules. But I've had a hard time doing multiple film projects kind of yeah I, I sort of and one always inevitably leads to the next one way or the other so I kind of have faith in 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 in, in the fates that uh somehow one thing will lead to the next thing because uh, that's has kind of worked for me um but on like for example on 18 and a half the film we're doing now like that one I knew that I would be busy with post-production and festivals and distribution and promoting the last film and so that's why i brought in a writing partner on that one because i was like look i know i'm gonna have be too focused on the on the last film so you take the ball and run with it for a year and uh and let me know when you've got a draft done um and that was and that worked out well you know that worked out great for all of us now, Slam Dance, uh, Slam Dance Film Festival, which is a brilliant film festival in Utah, which is fairly close to us. And uh, looking over that, you've had some amazing directors and creators in that. What was the precipice of that film festival? Well, I, I had this first film, Omaha the Movie, um, and it didn't get into Sundance. So that was, that was in 90, would have been for January 95. And, and that was kind of, and that era was kind of a pivotal time in independent film. That was kind of the Hollywoodization of independent film. Miramax had just sold to Disney. Uh, Warner Brothers had just bought uh, Fine Line. Fox was about to launch Fox Searchlight. And, um, you know, and, it, and so Sundance was kind of 
you know, they were like, oh, forget about these little first time directors. We're going to go bigger films, bigger budgets, second time directors, things that were going to be sold to Fox Searchlight. And they kind of left behind the niche of the first time little indie directors like like me. And 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 I wasn't and it wasn't just me. We I found a lot of other first time directors, uh, you know, and all of us have been kind of influenced by that kind of first wave of, of Sundance filmmakers, Soderbergh and um, uh, Rodriguez and, and Linkletter and those guys. And so, um, and they just, and Sundance wasn't showing as many films then as they do now. So we realized, Hey, if we, you know, we, we really needed to, to do something, uh, cause we weren't getting into Sundance. And, and the reality was at the time that distributors would tell you point blank, say, Oh, we love your film and we want to pick it up for distribution. Great. Ah, but, only if it gets into Sundance. And um, and they were just very matter of fact about it. And, and the reality was also there weren't as many festivals. There weren't as many other places to premiere your film. Um, most other festivals, both domestic regional festivals as well as international festivals would take that Sundance program and say, oh, there's our slate of, you know, this year's 15 indie American indie films. And those same films would just play at all the other festivals. So the, the bottom line was if you didn't get into Sundance, you you were that was the end of your story so um and we had heard of a couple individual filmmakers including trey parker and matt stone who the year before colorado guys right gone to mm -hmm. university of colorado um they had shown their thesis film uh which later became called cannibal the musical um also didn't get into sundance but they had done their own little renegade screening there was another guy named james marandino did the same thing with his film called the upstairs neighbor and, uh, and there were some guys out of New York who had shown a bunch of shorts at Slam Man's called Film Crash. And we'd heard these little pockets of stories in previous years. And we thought, aha, why don't we just go to Park City? We got a dozen feature directors and a dozen short filmmakers. We combined all of our resources and efforts, stuck a name that would look good on a t-shirt. Still, there you go, <laughs> or a hoodie. And, um, and, uh, and and we just showed up in Park City, uh, literally 30 feet down the hall from Sundance in one of our venues, and we just started screening. And and everyone was, all the press, which were kind of turning on Sundance a little bit because they'd sort of gone Hollywood, um, they were like, aha, these guys, this is the real independent spirit. This is what Sundance started as. And so we got all this amazing press and attention that first year. And we're like, okay. And by the end of that first week, we're like, you know what, let's do this again next year. Yay, uh, because there's gonna be more filmmakers like us that, that are gonna need a home. And, and sure enough, now 28 years later, uh, we're still doing it, so. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, that, that was one of the ones when we like, you know, put our, when we're starting to put our movement together, uh, we had a list of mm -hmm. like, these festivals we really wanna get into and Slam Dance is in like the top five. We're like, okay, we Thank gotta you. work on this. Uh, so we gotta wait till next year though. Uh, but I do wanna throw a name at you. When we did a little bit of research uh, on you, Mr. Dan Mervish, uh, we found the name uh, Martin Eisenstrat. Uh, yeah. And that was something that, uh, that stuck out to uh, Dylan from <laughs> I, high school, which is, I was getting into I was getting aware and into politics in the 2008 election, and I remember re noticing that Martin Eisenstadt was a fake person, and what? it was it was kind of a thrill to be like, oh, this is the guy behind that, and also the Hathaway effect, which is way minor, but I had read about that in high school, and I'm like, oh my god, we're interviewing that that guy here today. Yeah, um, I did have a specific question about Martin Eisenstadt. Sure. It, um, 
how how did it feel and how kind of did it affect your kind of perception of your own place in media to have a persona who was very kind of recognized outside of your normal sphere like were you able to leverage that a little bit into more your own notoriety did you have any sort of like impersonators who tried to claim they were that guy be (laughs) outside of your own influence well no but it's and and for those who don't know the story and it is a long story we'll try and do, do the abbreviated version so it um, another Slamdance filmmaker, a, a guy named Eitan Gorland, who had actually won Slamdance in 2001. He and I were friends. We, the short version is we started doing a series of shorts, um, just kind of for fun that kind of turned into kind of pilot pitches for TV shows. One of those pitches was about a Washington pundit, you know, just like a single cam comedy. Um, and as kind of as a way to do a proof of concept for that, we, we shot, and Eitan played the character of Marty Eisenstadt, who was a senior fellow at the Harding Institute for Freedom and Democracy, named after what was then the second worst president in US history, Warren Harding. And um, uh, so we created a, a blog for Marty and a website for the Harding Institute and these videos uh, with him being interviewed on like a third rate Iraqi uh, TV, you know, cable channel, which of course we shot in my garage in Culver City in LA. and. Um, and this was just kind of a, as a proof of concept. So we could, when we pitched the series, we were like, oh, okay, this is what the character kind of looks like. This is what he does. Here are some of the supporting characters that we built into this world of the blog. Um, but then lo and behold, he got quoted by the media and uh, LA Times, Time Magazine, CBS News. Um, and eventually by the end of the campaign, um, when Sarah Palin, uh, memorably said that she thought Africa was a country instead of a continent. That story had been leaked by an anonymous McCain advisor to uh, Fox News. And Marty Eisenstadt, who by this point was claiming to be a McCain advisor, um, took credit for being the source of that story. And MSNBC had bum, 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 breaking news, Marty Eisenstadt is the source of the Palin Africa story. And they had two dial pundits talking about it as if it was all real. because, And they never... Googled him, you know, because if they had Googled him by this point, we had um, we had a nemesis. We had a, a, a blogger, an American expat blogger in Brazil, a guy named Bill Wolfram, uh, was out and was determined to figure out who Marty Eisenstadt was because it was we did it very anonymously. No, I mean, there were people in Hollywood that we were pitching this to. They knew who we were, um, but no one outside of L.A. knew. And so this guy was was kept outing us as fake too. So as soon as, uh, you know, he'd get quoted by the LA Times, this guy in Brazil would would out us. Anyway, so we thought this is the end of the election campaign. And we, uh, and we thought we would out ourselves finally as the creators of Marty Eisenstein. We knew someone at the New York Times and they wrote a big half page profile on us saying these two obscure filmmakers were, were Marty Eisenstein. Uh, that story got picked up by AP and Washington Post and we were on CNN as ourselves. And, uh, and the next day we got a book offer. We're like, book, what's a book? This was supposed to be a TV pitch and uh, you know, or maybe a future idea or something. And, but the interesting thing was the timing. This was in the fall of 2008 and, um, and the economy had just collapsed. And so this was the little side project we were doing in the garage while both of us were trying to get our next features made. And then all of a sudden, like you couldn't get a feature made 
at any budget level. It didn't matter because the economy had fallen through. And so when uh, you get a book offer uh, you're, and, and the choice is do you get paid to write a book or not get paid to, to direct a movie, your wife tells you to write a book. And so we, we did, and you know, and it, which was a lot of fun. I mean, we had fun doing it and it was based on these same characters. So it really wasn't that different from writing a screenplay, you know, and, and lo and behold, the, you know, number one, we made money, but number two, we, the book did really well. It got great reviews, uh, had a famous publisher and we got agents out of it. And then based on the notoriety of the book, we went back to Hollywood and, and pitched it again as a series and actually came really close. Ashton Kutcher's company loved it. They were gonna produce it. They had a deal with CBS Studios. They loved it. We were all gonna pitch it to Showtime. And then at some point, the executive at Ashton Kutcher's company got fired and that was, poof, it all disappeared. It, it ended, you know, and so as soon as the executive goes, so go the project. Yeah. Um, so that was as close as, as we came to getting it turned into something. But the interesting thing that you, you kind of made a point about is that by doing something in a completely different medium, completely different space, a different world, um, it actually helped our careers. It didn't hurt them. Um, you know, I thought, oh, great. Now, and then after that, I was like, okay, it's been two years doing this project. I'm going to go back to making that film I was trying to make two years earlier. And strangely enough, and I thought, oh, you know, people are going to think, oh, this guy went off and did this crazy thing. But now, uh, people in Hollywood kind of respected that now. Oh, he's a now he's a novelist, you know, with a fancy publisher, <laughs> and agent, and blah blah blah. Um, and so it didn't really hurt, and if anything, it probably helped my kind of stature. And that was a good kind of object lesson. Number one, in the project itself, was kind of a turned into sort of a transmedia project. You know, we thought it was a TV pitch. It was a series of webisodes along the way. It was a you know, it was fake news before fake news was cool. I mean, while fake news was still cool. And, um, uh, you know, and then wound up being a book. And and so it was a good kind of object lesson that number one, don't get hung up on the media. You know, like if you've got a good story or a good character or a good style of what you're doing, you know, let uh, figure, you know, don't, don't say, oh, it must be a 90 minute feature or, oh, it must be a six episode, you know, episodic. If, if it works out that way, great. But if it works out as you get a book deal or a comic book deal or a video game deal, great. Follow, follow your own creation and, and see where it leads you. So that was a good kind of eye-opening thing for us. And we were like, yeah, why not? That works. And then, and then knowing that you'll still get respect back in your original industry, you know, like, and, and that can actually help you not, not certainly not hurt. So those were some kind of good lessons out of that one. Yeah, well, that's stunning. Yeah, that's stunning because that's—I mean, on like the smallest scale possible. That's kind of how we started our thing. Uh, we kind of created our own person. His name's Simon, and then we had this weird uh, mini videos of him finding this stupid information and you know blowing up this this big yeah. uh, conglomerate thing. Uh, so when yeah. we saw that you were a, you know, a part of that, it was like, oh, this is so so cool. Uh, one last thing that I want to talk to you about. Obviously, we could talk to you for hours because you are so so interesting. Uh, but it is uh, Dylan brought up earlier. It is the Hathaway effect. Uh, will you speak on a moment of what the Hathaway effect is? Sure. Yeah. So I'm I'm from Omaha, so I always kind of know a little bit about Warren Buffett and and Berkshire Hathaway. And uh, actually, my wife and I both noticed that the the day after um, Anne Hathaway and James Franco hosted the Oscars, that the uh, share price for Berkshire Hathaway went up. And then I was like, hmm, 
I wonder if that's because these algorithmic robots just saw her name trending basically uh, in the news. And so I went back and I looked and every time Anne Hathaway's name was in the news for a premiere or a casting announcement or an award or something, sure enough, the share price for Berkshire Hathaway went up. So I wrote a little piece about it in Huffington Post and, um, and that got picked up by, by the Atlantic Monthly, did a follow-up, and they actually talked to some real economists who were like, yeah, there is actually something to this um, because th there's all these, like, you know, so much of trading is done automatically by algorithms that they're just picking up on this random stuff, and, and that's kind of what this points to. Um, and I think Paul Krugman wrote about it in the, in the New York Times, you know, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist uh, Paul Krugman, and um, and so it it's uh, and it's been interesting. Like uh, over the years, people like economics classes have studied this a little bit and figured it out. And I've actually talked to a few people that I know at Berkshire Hathaway, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you're the guy." You know, <laughs> <laughs> and like oops. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of a fun, interesting thing. And that, and then I've thought about like maybe turning it into a script at some point, but I, I haven't done that yet. But I, I yeah, I think a little bit, a, a little bit of the Googling I did on you said that it, that was a project that you had currently working on, uh, which is pretty interesting. Uh, is there anything you are working on currently that you would like to talk about before we get into what we do on this show? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the first thing is 18 and a half. This is, um, the feature that I'm doing now. Uh, always have a button handy. That's what I say. Um, and this is a um, it's a 70s Watergate conspiracy thriller slash dark comedy um, that I'm in finishing up post production right now. Um, and we shot it last March, uh, thinking, oh, what could possibly go wrong? And then there was a pandemic, and so <laughs> had to uh, we had to take a pandemic pause or a healthy hiatus with just four days left to go in production. And um, and then six months later, went back. This is we shot it in um, on the far eastern edge of Long Island, a town called Greenport. Greenport, and um, and finished shooting the last four days in September, and uh, using all the pro COVID protocols. And um, so yeah, we're finally getting close to finishing it uh, right now. But it's it's got a great cast: Willa Fitzgerald and John Magaro and Vondi Curtis Hall and Kathy Curtin and the and featuring the voices of Ted Ramey and uh, John Cryer and uh, Bruce Campbell as Nixon. Oh, and Richard Kind oh, oh. in it. So <laughs> all kinds wow. of okay. All right. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, it's not easy stopping a film when you're, when you've got three quarters of it done and then you have to shut down. But, you know, it was a weird time and we just rolled with it. But luckily, you know, I think creatively that pause actually, if anything, helped us. You know, we were able to refine the script and when we went back for those last four days and everybody stayed healthy, nobody got COVID. And we were, you know, we were one of the last productions shooting in North America when we when we shot or when we finished. And we were one of the first ones coming back in September, too. So we really worked closely with SAG and DGA and in, in doing figuring out all the safety protocols. So, um, so yes, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm very happy with how the film's turning out. So. Right on. Oh, yeah. Cannot wait. And then, to that. Uh, so cool. and then I also have the second edition of my book, The Cheerful Service Guides Independent Filmmaking, is coming. I've been working on that as well during the pandemic. And so that is coming out July 6th from uh, Focal Press in Rutledge. 
So uh, it will have a green cover. This is the first edition with the purple cover. Oh, if you like green, wait around for the second edition. <laughs> but you can you can pre-order it on Amazon. I think it's already available. Oh, right on. Awesome. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, wow, you're so busy. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> uh, and then I'm making sourdough a lot. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Of Classic COVID. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people. A lot of people are hopping into that right now. Uh, okay. Let's hop into. Dylan, do you have any any more questions for Mr. Mervish? Nah. D Dylan <laughs> is the writer of the two, so he was uh, very excited to talk to you. I'm yeah. just the talker cool. and the the weird one that thinks of stuff. So. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, okay. So let's hop into the, what we do here. Uh, so what we do, Dylan and I, we send a lot of text messages back and forth. I try to give him weird ideas for things we should turn into movies or projects. And uh, most time he doesn't respond to me. So what we decided to do was to have our guests decide on what thing we should work on from now on. So uh, now my selection did not get chose last week so i get to pitch that first uh mr mervish i had the idea to work on a project where um aliens of some sort come and <laughs> visit earth realize that humans have just taken over completely and are kind of, kind of bullying the earth and they choose one uh species to uh force evolution on to become our a just dominant thing so the, the, we have something else that we have to worry about uh dylan told me last week that it was called an uplift which is when you force uh evolution onto a creature uh, sci-fi sci -fi term i know yeah <laughs> uplift yeah sure. yeah i would I, we, we don't really know what creature it is yet uh somebody suggested a crocodile i would think maybe a cephalopod i have no idea uh but yeah so the idea that uh aliens come here and kind of pick on us by uh, choosing something else and, and making them cooler. So I'm call I'm <laughs> I'm calling this idea alien uplift for right now. All right. And uh, Dylan, you go ahead and. So I had a dream a few days ago. I think I think that's where this came from. But Zach sent me a text a while ago that was like, "What about something that eats the future?" And I'm like, "I don't know how that works ca with causality and stuff." But I had this idea where. I'm imagining like a drifter going into a town, small town and probably in the Midwest. Cause I grew up in Ohio and there's a lot of creepy stuff in Ohio. And there's a lot of, there's like a fair amount of empty buildings and people are just like, I don't know. Nobody's lived in those for a long time. And it turns out that there's a monster living nearby that will eat people. And when it does, it removes them from everybody's memory. So this town is slowly getting depopulated and nobody remembers anybody who used to live there. I don't know what to call it. It's pretty bare bones, but it seemed like a creepy monster idea, and I like creepy monster stuff, and so that's what I am bringing this week. Uh, so, so it's a it's a monster that lives close to a town that eats. I, I'm a huge fan of monsters living in abandoned quarries because I grew up in a town that had several abandoned limestone quarries next to it, and you would go diving yeah. in it during the summer, and they always had like the drains underneath and the tunnels and that sort of thing. So it's perfect monster environment. And I figured sure. some sort of memory eating monster. All right. Something so like I that. For, yeah. Right now, I'm just going to call that feeding on the future. Sure. Uh, okay. So, uh, Mr. Mervish, yeah, please, uh, if you could choose one of these two weird projects for us to figure out what this thing is going to turn into. Well, I think, I mean, I always try to, when I work on films, um, uh, which is mainly what I do, I always try to reverse engineer them a little bit. So I always think, is 
you know, number one, I think, okay, you, you need to get something that's going to attract fancy pants actors, you know, A-list actors, B-list actors, what you know, famous actors. And act and what do actors like? They like good good roles, but more specifically, they like dramas, they like musicals, they like something that they haven't done before, they like monologues, they love to chew the scenery. Um, these these are the kinds of things that attract actors. Um and um and then I kind of so then I sort of reverse engineer and pick projects that I know are going to specifically get those actors because I know that when I do things, and this is not the same for everyone, it's the if I'm making my own films, I know that if I can keep the budget low enough, but still get a disproportionately higher level of actor, that that's going to number one, get the film financed enough for me to make it, and number two, get it into festivals and get it and ultimately get distribution and finally get audiences to want to watch it. And so I've had pretty good luck getting sort of disproportionately large actors given the small budgets that I have. Um, all right, so that's kind of my methodology is I kind of, that's sort of how I look at these things. And hopefully along the way, it's something that I want to, that I like and I want to do. Um, so <clears throat> for you guys then, between those two ideas, now the advantage, the, the one nice thing is as time and technology has progressed, you don't have to worry as much about you know, uh, special effects being so outrageously expensive that you can't do them on a low budget. You actually can. I'm even on this film I'm working on now. Um, I actually, while we're talking, I'm getting emails from. I have a team of VFX artists in Mexico working. Um, on, not that we have a lot of VFX shots, but the point is, you can. There are people around the world that you know you can do visual effects, so it's not as crazy to do. Uh, you know, sci-fi things for whatever, you know, whatever effects you want to do. So on the one hand, uh, the Zach's idea is not as crazy. Say you get a platypus that's going to be taking over the world or battling humanity for <laughs> the future. Um, you know, you could do, you could find effects artists in Sri Lanka or Guadalajara or wherever that, that are like really into doing platypi, platypuses. Anyway, yeah, the idea. Um, and so that is not as, you know, like five, ten years ago, I would have said, no way can you get a platypus uprising movie made these days, you know, on a low budget. You know, that's obviously a studio film. Um, but now that's not impossible. Um, it's a little trickier, but it can, it can be done. Um, but that said, going back to kind of the, my first kind of rule of thumb about finding things that are going to attract actors, um, sort of not, again, not knowing who the characters are and what these characters are gonna do in each of these things. I think that Dylan's idea, again, if this, assuming this is a low budget project. So the other thing I always say to, to writers is, or the question to ask yourselves is, is this something that you're planning on making for yourselves that you guys are gonna write, produce, direct, or is it something you're going to sell? Is it a script that you're gonna sell as this big spec script to the studios? And there's a very big difference in the way you write and what you write between making it yourself, where you have to think about budget considerations and casting, as opposed to something you're just gonna sell as a high concept thing. So let me ask you, which which one is this between those two categories? Hmm. Mine, the one I pitched? Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
baseline idea, I'd like to make this. It doesn't seem like it would be yeah. something that's super super heavy on special effects. Like you would have to worry about like off like location. That's right. the main thing. Getting the location right is probably the key for this one. Yeah, yeah. And Zach, yours is that something to sell or something to make? Uh, probably something to sell. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. big big thing franchise starting to sell. Right, right. So, okay. Well, there's two different things then. So, uh, <laughs> um, I yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, I figured out a, a long time ago for myself that I would rather make stuff for myself to make because I was sort of sick of waiting around for Hollywood to get my things made if I was trying to sell them and they weren't buying the things I was writing anyway. So um, I just figured I, it was more fun to write stuff for myself or my friends to make. Anyway, so I'm going to go with Dylan's project on this one. Um, because I, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, not that I like Dylan more than Zach. I'm not, you know, uh, but he did no, it's okay. Him. A lot, a lot of people say that. It's, it's. No. But he was a Marty Eisenstadt fan in high school, so I got to respect that. Yeah, that, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back, we're back in the big on. days. I know. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> All right. So we're going to work on whatever project is currently called Feeding on the Future. Uh, oh. Thank you to Mr. Mervish for choosing one of those two things. Uh, that probably is the better idea for, for this show. Because uh, I have not figured out what this animal is going to be until you said platypus. And now I'm 100% behind that. Uh, yeah, totally. But yeah. yeah uh, okay. So before we get into this, I just want to thank some people real fast. Uh, IBM TV, International Broadcast Media Television. Thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to just connect with uh, my best friend Dylan and some amazing people like Mr. Dan Mervish that I would not have if it was not for this uh, show. So thank you yeah. very much. Uh, Mick Manhattan with Scene Snobs. I appreciate uh, your attention and how much you like us. So thank you very much for having us on your network. We do have a bunch of people on the East Coast like Sarah Tkachik and Tanya Shek. Uh, we have Scott Curtis with Behind the Bits and his amazing award-winning podcast and also Listener App. If you're into uh, podcasts and you want to read the words, not just listen to them because I mumble and slur because I talk way too fast, uh, just go to Instagram and check out at the greatest podcast app, which is Listener. And we appreciate all those people for helping us keep this show going. And uh, all right, Dylan. So yeah. we have this thing where you have a monster that is feeding on something and then removing the future of that thing correct yeah uh yeah All or right. removing the present memory of that thing from everybody's mind okay yeah. uh and we're gonna have i guess a rundown town or something around this yeah monster. uh did you yeah. have anything in mind as far as uh like is is there like a genre of monster that this is doing is there a reason that this monster is eating things you know i'm a big fan of like old unknowable things hidden beneath the surface of the planet like i mean lovecraftians thrown around a lot nowadays but something kind of like that where it's it doesn't have a defined form it's not like a like a vampire or something like that it's just it lives underground in i'm really stuck on this quarry idea because they freaked me out when i was a kid um yeah. but you know it's living on the outskirts of town and every once in a while it somehow I don't know how either like entrances someone into coming to it or it just devours someone, including their memory. So, but not physical evidence. I think having physical evidence left behind would be interesting. Or suddenly it's like you wake up and you're like, I have a picture on my mantle and there's someone in it, but I don't know who that person is. Like that sort of right. thing. 
Well, what if they like eat your parent? Would would you not remember who your parent was? Or we're gonna get to these rules later. I I think I think we're I mean we're gonna have to get to these rules at some point. It's probably gonna That's be true. throughout. But I figure like it is not it's not a uh, it's not a nuanced thing. It's not like a scalpel. It's just like yep. And cool. so you're okay. like, I have parents. I don't remember what they what this what my mom looked like or who they were or anything like that. I guess that person is on the in the picture is probably my parent. Yeah. Why don't I remember uh, it? So, Mr. Mervish, when you uh, when you have ideas pop into your head, do you, are are do you have more of like that just that weird idea? It's like I wonder what happened in this situation, or is more of your ideas more character based or conversation based? Well, uh, that's a good question. I, I sometimes, I, I think, I think not, not unlike what Dylan's done, I'll come up with a, a concept, you know, that seems intriguing and then start thinking about, okay, what are the characters that, that would be fit in well with that world that would also be appealing to actors to do, you know, um, yeah. uh, yeah, so I th that's kind of how I look at it. Um, I mean, certainly you can do it the other way and like, oh, come up with a really great character, like the Martin Eisenstadt thing is we kind of came up with the character first and then built a world around around that, uh, around him. Uh, whereas 18 and a half, the one I'm doing now, we kind of came up with a storyline about the Nixon tapes and then was like, okay, who would be the best characters to, f to fit in that world? So this is kind of more like that. Um, and so, and, and I think, you know, what's interesting about it is, and why I think this will be appealing to actors is, is playing with the idea of memory and what they do remember and do they remember the parents? Do they not remember the parents? And, and, um, and thinking about like that, you know, those, those kind of conflicts and, and, uh, and struggles that, that people have with memory and how does it, you know, and how does that analogize to, okay, someone with Alzheimer's and memory loss? Like, I mean, you know, if you, uh, like to sort of ground it to, to something that people are familiar with and, and, and that does touch on some real issues, you know, like how do we grapple with a parent or a grandparent who has dementia or, you know, the different versions of that. Um, and I think, the, the more you can kind of ground it in those real things and not just be about a monster, you know, that could be like a scary looking platypus. Um, but it's, uh, you know, making it relate to those kind of real issues that, that, you know, it's an analogy, it's not an analogy. It's a, Anal a simile uh, allegory. Metaphor. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. Metaphor. Yeah. Allegories, um, you know, for something else, uh, the, all of a sudden then that, that adds a layer of depth to the thing. Um, uh, and then people go, oh, it's, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's like shape of shape of water was, you know, an allegory for, I don't know, the blacklist or I don't know what it was an allegory for, but it, you know, like that was, there were things in there that gave it extra layers of depth that it wasn't just a, a silly monster movie, you know? Yeah. So, um, and then, and then you'll win an Oscar. There you go. That's oh, hey, all right. It's just that easy. 
throw some songs into it. Uh, okay, yeah. so Dylan, <laughs> let, I guess let's work on a couple of characters first. Yeah. Um, so the characters that we're going to deal with in this, uh, I do like uh, Mr. Mervish's idea of uh, throwing in the idea of grappling with dementia. I think that's uh, pretty important right now. Uh, well, it's obviously always important, but uh, it's an important thing. And if it does ground it, that's cool. So um, who are some people you want to see in this movie? Oh, I'm I, I drawing some weird mental par like comparisons to They Live. So I think we have like a drifter kind of be the main character. We can set this during like, we don't have to set this in modern day. I think it would be easier for us as writers if we set it during a time where like, cameras weren't in everybody's pockets and we didn't have easy access to cell phones. So we set it in like the eighties, or if we want to go further back and make it a period piece, we set it during like the dust bowl. If we want to really make it like kind of feel old worldy where like the monster is something ancient and is like the last of its kind or something. Cool. Uh, I mean, the dust bowl was back in like thirties. It was like the 30s right so you've got a you've got a time of like a lot of upheaval a lot of societal change and a time where people still believed in a lot of weird kind of like occult mystic ancient archaic stuff and it justifies yeah, gonna... us having kind of like this fun setting period dialogue and that sort of thing uh yeah i'm, I'm into that so Let's see. So, we're 30s, what, where in the world is this? I'm seeing the Midwest, or the Dust Bowl kind of affected every everywhere. Um, also, incidentally, Alzheimer's was uh, named after a guy who noticed it in 1906. So, we have reason to bring that up as a potential kind of, like, new disease people are talking about. Um, okay. The Dust Bowl was... A, let's see. I found a map. It impacted uh, the Oklahoma Panhandle the Texas panhandle, the southwestern corner of Kansas, and the southeastern corner of Colorado. So we can set this in, like, I mean, we can set it near Wichita. <laughs> we go to Wichita a fair amount in our stories, which is fine by me. Um, but if we really want to, like, set it somewhere that is kind of, like, isolated in a place that could be really untouched, we could set it somewhere in southwestern Kansas, which I like. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay, so it's roughly in the 30s, and we are in southwest Kansas. We know that we have, uh, there's a monster somewhere. We don't know about this thing yet. There is a drifter that I guess is getting to this place, and then they're going to meet somebody. And I guess that's kind of when we get launched into the story, right? <clears throat> uh, Mr. Mervish, uh, one thing that we talk about often with other creators is the idea of the window character, which is the character that kind of pops you into the story and gives you the rules, a lot of exposition because they are brand new to the situation. Um, how important do you think it is to have that window character in a different setting of a movie? Um, I, it's great. I, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but... Yeah, I 100% I, I agree. You, you need some grounded character that, that is the, exactly as you say, the window for the audience into this world who, and, you know, one way or the other, either a character or exposition or somehow you, you explain the rules of the world and, um, and, and now you're in. And then, you know, all kinds of weird things can happen as long as you have one point of view that's um, kind of with, with the uh, the you know the audience is with them, um, 
so yeah, I I'm down with that, especially if you have kind of weird things, you know, in a script where yeah. there need to be rules and it is strange. You know, there are strange things. So you need the the audience needs to. Um, yeah, I always think of it this way: like the audience needs to ground themselves in something, whether that's a character or some or a location or I don't know. They've got to they've got to find their way into the story one way or the other, and I think you're right. I think character is kind of, kind of the, the best way, certainly the easiest way to do it. Yeah, I like that. So we have our drifter that's going from the east coast, probably head over to the west coast for whatever reason uh, to start their life, and then they kind well, of pop was, into this. That, you know, that was uh, in the '30s. That was the, you know the Yokies from Muskogee. They were going from Oklahoma to California. That was you know uh, grapes of wrath. That whole thing. I mean, that was that was the migration pattern there. So you may as well work with that and say, well, here's this guy going from Oklahoma to California, yeah. but he gets stuck in this town in Southwestern Kansas and weird things happen. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we got that guy, uh, Drifter. He goes over to this town. And uh, what, Dill, what, what does he encounter pretty quickly? What What is the thing that, that makes him think something's up with this area? Well, I think we see from his point of view that this town is on hard times. And he probably thinks that's normal. I, see, I think we see a lot of buildings that are abandoned. But I think the weird thing he notices is that they're abandoned and not necessarily all old. Like there are some recent buildings, like some newly built ones that seem to be like inhabited, like furnished family homes that are just not inhabited and nobody seems to acknowledge it. So he starts seeing that the town is run down. Uh, maybe he goes to like, there's like a, like a bunkhouse, 1930s, like flop house or something in there. Or he just tries or goes to the church. Cause he's like, Hey, I just need a space on the floor. Um, and I think I think he pretty immediately realizes that something strange is going on. Um, now, and I think I think something conspires to keep. I think something happens to keep him around for a little bit, like a storm rolls in or something like that. Hmm. Cool. Okay. So, and that that keeps him there for a couple of days for him to investigate and learn some more stuff. Yeah. So there's like a like a dust storm or something. Some crazy storm. Yeah. Okay. And what what is what what is something that he's gonna uh, I guess interact with to let him know that there's something bigger than just this place is on hard times. I figure he meets up. I'm seeing like a family getting involved in some way. Like there's a family with like a young kid. So we can have that precocious kid kind of like talk about the town or something like that. And maybe like, I don't know if we, I don't think having a picture on the mantle with like a fourth member of this three person family, it's like, uh, you know, we only have little, little Johnny. He's our only kid. I don't know. Maybe it's one of his well, friends from school. You could have the thing where maybe as soon as the drifter gets to the town, he meets that entire family, including that kid. And then yeah. maybe later on, he sees that kid by himself and he's like, Hey, how's your, your brother? And he's like, I don't have a brother. And he's like, I well, just met your brother not so long ago. What if what if he meets that family and stays with them, and then the next day there are only three of them and nobody acknowledges it, and then he points at the picture on the mantle and we see that he's affected by it as well? That might be... I don't know if that's too hard on the audience. 
Um, I don't think so. I, yeah. I ask Mr. Mervish, one thing that we also talk about is uh, the, the intelligence of the audience of a moviegoer. You can watch some things and you can tell that they're really uh, dumbing the information down to make sure that everybody gets it. And then there's obviously some movies that fly over everyone's head because they're not giving enough information. Where do you lie when it comes to giving the audience the right information to not make it feel forced? Yeah, you know, that's a great question and it's something I'm uh, dealing a lot with on uh, 18 and a half right now because uh, as we're sort of in post we're, we're kind of saying you know do we have do we are we spoon feeding this too much are we spoon feeding it not enough and you really kind of have to dial it in sometimes you don't you don't always know until you show the script to a bunch of people and even then when you shoot it you're like oh, should we shoot this exposition thing like well maybe we should shoot it but then in editing you're like eh, no that's it's, you know the audience is smarter than that and then you you cut it out or you or you cut it back uh, and um, yeah so I I mean I wrestle with that constantly especially if it's a sort of a plot driven thing which th this one kind of is um, uh, but then again I also think that at the end of the day you kind of have to think emotionally. Um, and this has kind of seen me through some of these discussions is like, hang on a second. Are we, are we landing? Is the audience going to be with us emotionally with this character or with that character? Are they going to, you know, even if they don't understand all the plot machinations, uh, are we still giving them a character that they can relate to and, 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 and again, ground it, um, and, and feel like they care about this character or not care about them, whatever it is. Um, and so I've kind of evolved a little bit in my thinking that it's less about making sure all the plot is, is you know, tucked in neatly and it's more about, uh, is it a fulfilling character journey for the audience and the characters? Um, and at the end of the day, that kind of is more important. Now, ask me in six months if people liked my movie or not at all. <laughs> or if they were just confused by it. Uh, yeah. yeah, like they need a little more information. And, uh, <laughs> if, if I, yeah, so maybe I will rethink that theory again. But um, but yeah, it is a, it is a tricky right. thing. You have to dial it in, dial it back. And um, yeah. Okay, Dylan, so <laughs> yeah. we, we, we want to follow this drifter. We want to believe in this drifter, and he's the hero of the story. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Or, or is this a thing where they might turn on him in the middle because uh, happen, happenings are going on once he gets there? Or is that a played-out trope? I, I don't think they turn on him. I think he's here while the town kind of falls apart around him because <laughs> this town is very clearly inhabited by more people than live there. Um, I had an idea for just like a scene. Maybe he goes to the local diner and the diner owner is like in a, in a panic because they're understaffed. And it's like, yeah, I have all these name tags for people who have never worked here. And like, I have more uniforms than I have staff. And I don't know where these came from stuff like that. Like people are starting to question their re like their sanity and their reality. And he kind of appears when this town is getting pretty close to a breaking point. So I don't think. I don't think they would blame him. I think they just start to kind of, I think it's more holes appear in their memory. They start to get more and more scattered and just kind of like the town kind of slowly drifts apart at, at it seems. And he's kind of, and he, 
thinks, you know, he, he really appreciates his family taking him in. The town is good to him. Like they're all nice people. I don't think we do the whole, like the mist where, yeah, you know, some voice of non-reason starts to take a hold of their mental faculties. I think we just have this be like, something is wrong with this town and this drifter trying to figure out what it is. Um, and I think, I don't know how we justify it, but I think there's one character who kind of like has fragments of memory just so they Uh, can be kind of like the thread or what are you thinking? Well, I was thinking that there's that, you know, in most towns, there's a hall of records or whatever. And that person has facts, you know, and I think that that would maybe skew somebody's thought process. Um, also when it comes to this monster, are we going to show this monster at all? Or is this just something that's like very, uh, not hypothetical, but off camera? I'm seeing it's a platypus (laughs) (laughs) in Kansas. Oh, it's just mad about not being there. It's mad about not being home in Australia. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'm seeing a lot of like, I do see a final maybe confrontation between the drifter and this thing. Maybe he gets taken to its lair or, or somehow finds out where it is. And it does the whole, like, I don't know if it communicate, it might communicate with him at this point, if it's super old and like beyond mortal comprehension, it probably has a method of communicating, but you do a lot of those like blurry discretion shots and, darkness obscuring the screen and maybe like some shifting in the shadows to show that there is some presence there. Mm-hmm. But I think a creature like this is probably not very physical. Yeah. Now, is this this the type of story that the creature is going to be destroyed at the end of it? Maybe not the destroy- president. Or elected president. <laughs> who, was, who would have been president in like president in the 1930s? Um, Warren Hardy. Yeah, Warren Harding, Hoover, Hoover, <laughs> Herbert Hoover. Um, I'm seeing, um, maybe it's not destroyed, but it's either neutralized or like put into a slumber, and then you have that question of like, well, we've we've defeated it for now, and then there's the implication <laughs> that it might come back in like seventy years or, so, or whenever it wakes up. Yeah, like you know, now is this love? Of crafty, and it's like you can't really kill it, but you can. Well, and and I think that's the interesting appeal of something like this. Is even though it's set in the past, it's like, oh, is does that explain why we can't remember some things? You know, is that yeah. character, is that monster among us now? Um, now, do I have grandparents that I don't remember? I don't, no. you know, or do I not yeah, remember is... where my socks were because of this? You know, bump, bump, bump. <laughs> the sock eater. Uh, is this the thing where if it does get neutralized, people get their memories back, or is that just that's done? I don't know. I had the idea okay. that the drifter teams up with like the local librarian, who the librarian's mm-hmm. like, "You're new in town. I don't know if this is affecting you, but people are missing from not only physical, but there are people who live in this town that we don't remember." And the librarian knows because they have all the genealogical stuff or like the local census or something like that. But the librarian's affected, so there's a little bit of like, you know, you get you get you get the muscle and you got the brains kind of working to set this town right, and it's like. And is there romance between the two of them? I'm generally a fan of having romance. Zach almost always shakes his head no. Um, yeah, no. 
I <laughs> if maybe maybe he has a little like will they won't they with like someone at the diner and then that diner person disappears and that's yeah, kind of can... like and he sees like a picture of her and he has that like far away look in his eye like now I will say this is, one, of it. this is one of the few stories we wrote that or that we're working on that I would say romance might actually work here uh, I think when you do have that that uh, emotional connection with the idea of losing somebody or something, I think that's when it works. I think just having two pretty people in a movie like each other because they're pretty uh, is is kind of annoying, really. Uh, so, but yeah, I think in this story it actually makes sense if he does get here and he does like somebody, and then uh, he. I think it's the librarian. That, okay. that makes sense. I, I'm into that. Okay, so uh, Mr. Burbish, when you're when you're writing a story and you start having a couple scenes or a couple ideas is how important is it to you to bookend your story to actually have the ending or do you still just kind of throw a bunch of scenes or ideas at something um i think in my case i i i i'm a big fan of endings and and buttoning things up at the end one way or another uh and and pretty much all my movies i've kind of known where they're ending early in the process um either because it's at a location that i know is sort of a you know alfred hitchcock for example always ended his film not all of them but a lot of them ended at sort of big monumental locations obviously north by northwest at, at uh, mount rushmore so for example on my first film uh omaha the movie a friend of mine told me about this great place in western nebraska not not far from kansas um called carhenge which was this great replica of stonehenge built out old american car stuck in the ground and uh and this is a musician friend of mine he said oh let's shoot a music video there and i said no that's it's too good for that let's let's shoot a feature and that will be our big ending that'll be our big hitchcockian ending is that carhenge and um uh and then i just worked backwards and I was like, okay, now how do I get characters to Carhenge? Why are they going to Carhenge? You know, like I literally just reverse engineered it based on the location at the end. Uh, on 18 and a half, it was, um, it was an interesting take on historical um, fiction where I, my feeling with historical fiction was you have to kind of end the movie as if that story that you just told never happened so that so in our case, um, the 18 and a half minute gap, it gets in the Nixon tapes gets discovered, but somehow by the end of the movie, the, the, the timeline that we are familiar with, wherein there is no, nobody does know what the 18 and a half minute gap, that has to be there by the end, by the way, which is a different approach than say Tarantino takes yes. in his historical fiction, where the timeline is changed by the end of it. Yeah. And, I'm not saying one is better or the other, but you kind of have to think about that. So again, in this case, you know, getting back to the story at hand, like by the end of the movie, does the world know about this monster and this thing, or is it back to, it's a mystery why people forget things, you know? So Zach isn't a huge fan of romance in the stories. And I'm a, I'm a big fan. My trope I go back to is bleak. I'm generally a big fan of movies where it's a little more, the, the ending is hard fought and you win, but it took a lot to get there. So I'm, yeah. I would say that widespread knowledge of this monster, the drifter is the only one who leaves with the knowledge of this thing. Yeah. I'm, I had an idea for like the librarian towards the end, like as you break into the third act, librarian gets eaten, drifter wakes up and he goes, what have I been doing? And he finds all of her notes. Cause she knew 
this thing devours memory. So she left him a whole bunch of notes and we can have a touching scene where she writes like a love letter to him. And he goes, I have no idea who this woman is like, but I get, I guess this fits with everything we're going. And we have that moment of incredible sadness where he realizes what's lost, goes to the quarry, has his triumphant moment and wins, but loses a lot in the process. Yeah, there you go. And continues cool. on like what, continues on west with this little town in Kansas just like effectively just going to go to dust because there's nobody left there. Cool. I like that. Um yeah. Mr. Rivers, we we also talk a lot about story You can call art. me Dan by the way. Uh, <laughs> we <just have> <laughs> okay. <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> All right, Dan. Uh hey, we're friends now. Yay, Dylan, I told you. Uh okay, yeah. so we do talk a lot about story arcs and uh, different style of arc telling. And the one that obviously people fall into the most is the three arc structure. Uh, is that something that you ever like uh, actually pay attention to? Or do you let the story kind of take its own arcs? Or is, is that just something that you just let go? Yeah, I'm not, uh, I, I'm probably not the best analyst at, three act structure and five act structure. And, and I, I know there's a lot of, I have friends that like teach screenwriting classes and they really know that stuff better than I do. I don't, I don't you know, I took a couple of screenwriting classes in film school and that's about it. But I think the, the key thing that I always kind of think about and it's sort of the, the very basics of the three act structure is that, you know, but at the end of the second act going into the third act, like your, your hero is at their lowest point and then they, you have to raise them up or they're at their highest point and, and you bring them down and that, and it all kind of climaxes at, at something and then and then changes or down climaxes and then they, they come back up for a triumphant ending. Other than that, I mean, my feeling about story is that at the end of them, and speaking about memory, is when, a when an audience comes out of a movie or finishes watching a movie, um, they typically remember the ending. They might remember the very beginning and they might remember one scene in the middle. And everything else is just a way to get them from not leaving or turning it off. Um, and if you kind of think about stories that way, the key is to just keep moment to moment interesting however that leads you. Now, I may be completely wrong, and I probably am, because again, I'm not an expert at sort of story structure <laughs> and things like that. But that seems to be like talking to audiences after my own films, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that one scene. And that's literally all they remember is that one scene. But that's why I say like, end, your very ending, like what is the, emo and, and again, it's not necessarily a plot point, it can be an emotional point or, or, or a dramatic thing that what is the mood or the tone that you end with in that closing scene? What is the music? What is the, what is the mood that you send them home with? Um, I think that and how you get there matters a lot less than, than sort of those emotional arcs. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but that's what no, I it, it no, it does. It's actually very helpful. Uh, Dylan, speaking of which, what, what would you say is a, is, a, is a successful ending to a story like this where you really don't change history and you probably don't even see this monster? Uh, the Acolyte on Netflix. It's, what is um, that? It's a movie set... Oh, wow. This was actually a pretty... This might have been a pretty 
large subconscious influence on this. It's a oh, um <clears throat> the acolyte? No, the oh what is it? Um, but Dan Stevens, the actor, has to go to an island to rescue his sister from a cult. Turns out they've got um some creepy some creepy god stuff uh going on on their island and it winds up with him kind of defeating the cult and removing their power apostle that's what it's called it's called apostle it's set in 1905 mm. but um he winds up kind of defeating the cult and i think he saves his sister he does he does he saves his sister but knowledge of what happens on the island doesn't really pass out of the island and ultimately the monster is is defeated but not in a way that is like triumphantly permanent. I'm trying really not to spoil okay. this because it's a pretty good movie, but um, it's it that's that's a pretty similar kind of theme and tone that I think this story would hit on. Yeah, I mean uh, that makes sense. If the Drifter is the only one that has pseudo knowledge of this event and whatever this monster does uh, eliminates uh, memory, then there would be no knowledge of this. I'm just curious how you would show an ending to a monster that might not be there if there is no afterwards. Well, if there's no afterwards, like in the movie? Like well, the yeah, movie because ends. like, okay. it, well, there's no, there's no memory of this thing, so there's no reason for anyone to even go look for this or prove that it exists. So. Right. Well, I think, I mean, if you pitch this as just like a strange encounter in middle America and it yeah. happened near the turn of the century... But the drifter leaves with some memory of what happens. The drifter has it. Maybe that's like some sort of bargain he makes with it. Or it's like, let me remember so or something. Stop eating these people. Somehow he gets leverage over this thing. Um, obviously, we're in outlining stage right now. So yeah. Um, but he leaves town and the monster kind of goes dormant. And the the victory of the movie is not having to worry about it for now. All right. <laughs> so we obviously have to do a little bit of work on oh, this yeah. story to, to get uh, a lot of this going on. I'm going to dig this one up. This is going to be But I, I Yeah, I actually do really enjoy how this is going. The idea of a monster that just eats memory, uh, digging into the emotional uh, crisis of forgetting people that are important, but not even knowing that you forgot them. I think that's that's pretty uh, traumatizing. Uh, Mr. Dan Mervish, thank you once again for spending any amount of time with us, uh, talking to us, answering Dylan's very ridiculous questions because uh, he, he fanboys over <laughs> over a lot of people. So Anytime. we really honestly appreciate your time, uh, your experience, and your knowledge. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, is there anything you want to tell people to go check out? Uh, this does go uh, all over the world for some unknown reason, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. When, when is it? When is this going live? Or uh, May 9th. We're in, uh, it's in a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, we got two Sundays. Okay. Um, yeah. So we, um, uh, so first of all, in general, if people are interested in me and what I've got going on, um, they can go to danmervish.com, um, uh, D-A-N-M-I-R-V-I-S-H.com. Um, and that is kind of where I put, you know, all my, that's my website. There you go. Uh, um, uh, they can follow me on, on Twitter. That's kind of the one social media that I'm probably most active on Twitter and, and Facebook, but don't try to friend me. I'm filled up at 5,000. So sorry about that. Um, but on, 
Twitter, but you can follow me on Facebook. Uh, and, and we have pages for most of my projects on there. Um, and like I said, the Cheerful Subversive Guide to Independent Filmmaking, the second edition is coming out July 6th, but you can go to Amazon um, already and just make sure it's the green copy. That'll be the new one. You can pre-order that, um, unless you want the purple one. But the green ones, you know, it's the new one. We And there's, and I've got chapters in there on how to shoot a film during a pandemic. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of updated stuff in there. Um, and, uh, and then the other thing about 18 and a half is um, we are always funding for it. <laughs> so never stop raising money. Um, and if you go to my website, there's a link to 18 and a half, and we are still raising money on through the Film Collaborative, which is our 501c3 fiscal sponsor. And the reason I was asking about the date is because uh, we are working on the end credits now. And if people give us $60, they can get a thank you in the end credits and get on IMDb pro and get on IMDb. Um, it is not too late to do that. And I think even in by May 9th, I think it will not be too late to get in the end credits. It's literally about like the day before we're mixing that into the final uh, color correction session. So uh, there, there will still be time. We can always add people afterwards um, to IMDb. But, um, but yeah, so 60 bucks gets you a thank you in the movie and, and 10,000 gets you an associate producer credit. So there's that. <laughs> You know, and anything in between, I'll take. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is so, so cool. Uh, Dan Mervish, danmervish.com, uh, Slam Dance Film Festival, 18 and a half. Uh, go check out all this amazing stuff. This guy is so creative and so inspirational, has a lot of really cool projects going on, has uh, been a part of a lot of really amazing things. So please uh, go check out Mr. Dan Mervish. Uh, once again, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, that has been our show. Uh, thank you, everyone watching, for hanging out with us and uh, having us create something very weird that uh, Dylan, uh, I guess, let me call feeding on the future. We will turn that into something else. You can go check out the progression of this over at somenobodies.com, as long as all the other weird projects. This is episode 39, which means we roughly have 42 projects uh, lined up based on this. Uh, one of them is a movie called Give Me Back that we created on this show. We are in post-production right now. It's a cool little horror body swap thing they're working on. If you want to go find that, we do have a GoFundMe for that, which you can find on our website. We also have a Patreon, and the people that do help us out via Patreon, uh, if you go to patreon.com backslash some nobodies, you can help us out and you get me to stumble around and say your name like Scott Curtis, uh, Tanya Sheck, Sarah Tkachik, uh, listener app at the greatest podcast app. Uh, and more importantly, my best friend, Dylan, thank you so much for being my friend, for being inspirational and just for listening to me and responding to any of my text messages. I appreciate you, dude. Real. Hey, none of this is, none of this would have happened without you, Zach. So give yourself some credit. Whatever. Hey, Mr. Dan, thank you so much. Everybody home. I've been Zach. He's been Dylan. You've been great. Thank you so much. Bye. Take it easy out there, everybody.